Uh, if you were here last week, you know we started our new series on the seven deadly sins. Uh, there's a criticism that I've heard of the American church, which is that the church doesn't talk about sin anymore. And so I thought, well, okay then, let's spend seven weeks talking about sin. Uh, and so the way we're doing that is working through a list uh, called the seven deadly sins. Uh, the seven deadly sins aren't strictly from the Bible. There's no place that says these are the top sins, but this is a, a human attempt at classifying the attitudes that tend to lead to all the other kinds of sins that we commit. And we're asking ourselves each week as we look at a particular sin, how does this sin entangle us? And how can we find freedom from that sin? Now, the reason for my choice of the word entangle there is because it comes from uh, scripture, uh, Hebrews 12.1, which I think we're going to be looking at every week in this series. Uh, Hebrews 12.1 is going to be kind of our theme for this message and I, for this series, and I hope that at the end of the series we'll all be able to recite it from memory if we can't already. But what it says is, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. See, what this verse is telling us is that we're supposed to think of life like a race, uh, a race with God. And what that means, what that implies, is that life takes courage, right? It takes some effort, it takes perseverance, it takes endurance, it takes commitment. And, and sin is like this big net or a spider's web that we get caught in and it keeps us from running that race and running it well. And what this verse reminds us of is that part of the Christian life involves making an effort to become disentangled from this sin that hinders us in our race. And, and so my hope is that this message, this um, series and this message can help all of us to do that. Now, one of the things that I realized is that I neglected last week to even define sin. What is sin? You know, sometimes we have a tendency to think of sin as just this list of rules that God has arbitrarily come up with in order to ruin our fun. And I think that's a terrible way of looking at sin. Uh, I would describe sin as anything we do that keeps us or others from experiencing life as God intended. And God's intention for us is good. That's an idea that's at the heart of faith, faith in God, that ultimately God's desire, his will for me, is, is good. He has a desire to bless and so God doesn't tell us to turn from certain behaviors because he's opposed to our joy or our peace or even our fun, uh, but because those behaviors are destructive and because they deviate from the good design that he created for us to experience. So I think the seven deadly sins are a great place to start if we want to talk about what are the attitudes that keep us from experiencing the life that God intends for us. And the sin that we're looking at this week, as Tracy said, is the sin of wrath. Now, some lists of the seven deadly sins say anger instead of wrath. I prefer the word wrath because I think 
for us at least, it has more of a connotation of explosive, uncontrolled fury than anger does. And I want to make that distinction uh, because it's important for us to recognize that anger is not always a sin. Uh, in fact, Ephesians 4.26 says, in your anger, do not sin. You notice it doesn't say, don't ever be angry, right? It says, when you are angry, do not sin. Anger is a state of mind that increases the likelihood that we are going to sin. You know, it's kind of like having lots of money. The Bible doesn't say that it's necessarily a sin to have a lot of wealth, but it is pretty clear that when you have a lot of wealth, your chances for sinning go up because there's all sorts of temptations that arise when you have lots of wealth uh, that can be harmful. And anger is similar. When, when we're angry, all of a sudden, there's a big danger that we're going to do something that's wrong. But anger itself is not always a sin. There's such a thing as righteous anger. In fact, I would go as far as to say that the lack of anger can be a sin. Um, back in August, some of you may have heard reports that in Pennsylvania, leaders in the Roman Catholic Church had for decades covered up a terrible pattern of abuse of children. Um, more than 300 priests were, were found to be guilty of, of abuse, or at least accused of the abuse, and there were over a thousand victims. Now, when you hear that, and you hear all of that was covered up, the leadership in the church made an effort to suppress it and cover it up, that should make you angry, right? And if it doesn't make you angry, that's a problem. And you know what? I think a little bit of righteous anger among the leadership in the church could have gone a long way to help preventing that problem. So there is a place for righteous anger. And actually, Jesus shows us that there are times when anger is appropriate. Because there were times when he got angry. Uh, Jesus got mad at the religious leaders a lot of the time. And he even went so far as to call them a brood of vipers. He called them hypocrites. He called them fools, and he was angry at them. He was angry at them for misrepresenting God and for putting burdens on the people that they didn't deserve to have and for using their positions of religious authority to feed their egos and make money. That got him upset. I think the most famous example of Jesus being angry is the time that he flipped the tables in the temple. Um, I think some people, maybe if they haven't grown up in church, don't even know that story. You know? and, and sometimes the public image of Jesus is like somebody who just floated around on a cloud and it was always just, peace, peace be with you. you know? But Jesus got mad enough that he, he flipped tables in the temple. And actually, we're going to look at that passage. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to John 2, starting in verse 13, if you want to follow along. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. 
How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. All right, so why is Jesus so upset here? Well, in those days, a system had developed that took advantage of people who traveled to the temple from a long distance to worship. Uh, People would come from foreign areas, and so they had foreign currency. And what they, the, the, those who ran the temple said is that if you're going to pay for a sacrifice for your worship, you need to pay for it with Jewish currency, not with foreign currency. So there were people who charged to exchange currency from foreign currency to Jewish currency. And when they did that, they would take an enormous percentage of the value of the money as a fee, 25, 50%. I don't know if any of you have traveled internationally, but you know that you don't, you don't usually want to go to the places to exchange currency once you get in country, right? That doesn't, doesn't work very well because you're going to lose a bunch of money. Um, and so what Jesus sees here is this system that takes advantage of people and he gets angry. He gets, he gets really, really angry because that system was creating an unnecessary barrier between people and worshiping God. And so he goes in and he flips over the, the tables of the money changers and he, he drives out the, uh, the animals that are being sold at high rates uh, for the sacrifices. And Jesus' example in this passage shows us that righteous anger has its place, especially when there's corruption in the church. Right? Especially when the church puts unnecessary barriers between people and God. So, We should feel righteous anger sometimes. Jesus models that. And in fact, uh, one of the seven deadly sins is actually what happens when we have no righteous anger. Uh, Next week, we're going to be looking at the deadly sin of sloth. And sloth is basically the attitude that says, whatever, I don't care, and doesn't do anything. Right? So we need a little bit of righteous anger sometimes to guard us against another deadly sin. Sloth. So there's a place for anger, but it does increase the likelihood that we're going to sin. So how do we know whether our anger is healthy or whether it's a sign that we have a problem with wrath? So I've come up with a list of four ways, or no, sorry, three ways, uh, that we can know we have a problem with wrath. Three indicators. So if you're taking notes, this is number one. First sign is that we get angry easily. We get angry easily. James 1, 19 through 20 says, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Slow to become angry. Uh, We have a problem with wrath if we're quick to shout, quick to lose our temper, If we use the excuse, I have a short fuse. Um, If we are quick to throw things, 
quick to interpret things as personal offenses. That's a sign that we have a problem. Uh, when we're quick to become angry, we get angry over things that don't matter. Raging angry over things that don't matter. Like the person in front of us is driving five miles an hour too slow. Oh, what a tragedy. You know? um, or it took too long for our food to come at the restaurant. Rah! I, <laughs> I found a list online where couples shared the stupidest things they've ever had, like nasty arguments over. And uh, I, think, I think we can identify with this, but I think this is what it looks like when we're quick to become angry, right? So these are some of my favorites from the list. <clears throat> I was telling him how much I love moths, and he said he didn't like them that much. Stuff went down. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to Steve from Blue's Clues? It got intense, and I was mad for a good five minutes until we realized what had happened. <laughs> how raisins are made. I, I took his shoes out of the dryer because they were making too much noise. He was mad at me all night. <laughs> the fact that he didn't save my name on his phone with a heart. If we find ourselves getting angry about stuff like this a lot, that's a sign that we are quick to become angry. We may have a problem with wrath. So that's number one. Second sign that we've got a problem is when we get angry, we lose control. We lose control. Uh, we explode. We fly into a rage. We say and do things that we wouldn't ordinarily do, things that afterwards we regret. Modern science actually gives us some insight into why there's a risk of this happening when we get angry. Our emotions begin in this part of the brain here called the amygdala. And when the amygdala senses that something is a threat, it may be a threat to our safety or even a threat to our self-image or our self-esteem, uh, the amygdala activates, just like it would activate if it you know, saw a big scary bear in front of you. And it, it sends these impulses to your body to react in a physical way. It kind of floods you with adrenaline, uh, your muscles ten tense up, your uh, heart rate increases, your breathing increases, your blood pressure goes up. And all of that is supposed to put you into attack mode. Because when you see a threat, there's two, two responses that your body tells you to have, right? It's either to run away or to fight. And when we get the impulse to fight, we narrow in on the thing that we see as a threat, and we want to attack it. Okay, whether it's present with us in the room or not, we just feel this desire to attack, attack, attack. And when we feel this, um, it can be very strong. And when the amygdala takes over, the part of our brain that exercises judgment and reason and reflection on our emotions, it doesn't, it doesn't have, it, it loses control. Okay? It can be overwhelmed by the amygdala. There's a different part of your brain that focuses on those things. It's, it's our cortex. And <clears throat> in order to have self-control, we have to learn how to not just follow our amygdala wherever it leads us in any given moment. None of us need to learn how to listen to our amygdala. Okay? When you're born, that's all you know. You know how to listen to your amygdala. Uh, but as we grow and mature in self-control, uh, self-control, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit, is learning 
how to not always do whatever our amygdala tells us in the moment, uh, but to submit our amygdala to the authority of our cortex, which should be submitted to the authority of the word of God. <clears throat> now, you might say, well, Ryan, didn't Jesus fly into an uncontrolled rage in this story about flipping the tables? Uh, didn't Jesus let his amygdala just totally take control? Well, I believe the answer to that is no. Uh, Jesus' actions may have appeared explosive here, but I think when we look at them closely, we see evidence that they were actually deliberate, controlled, and thoughtful. Deliberate, controlled, and thoughtful. They weren't just an explosion of rage like the whole crar, uh, but, but they, were, they were controlled. Now, why do I say this? Well, I have two, two reasons for thinking this that I think are debatable. You can take them for what it's worth. And then I have a third reason that I think isn't debatable. So you'll have to take it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, here's what they are. So first of all, notice that it says Jesus noticed what was happening and then he made a whip out of cords. The image that we might have of this scene is that Jesus walks in and he's like, ah! And so he just grabs something and he starts flailing it around. But he sees what's happening and he goes, okay. And so then he gathers whatever materials he needs. He sits down for a little while and he makes a whip of cords. So that's a sign that what he's doing here isn't just this impulsive, explosive rage, but there is, there's a deliberate nature to it. Okay, It is thoughtful. There is some reflection involved here. Another, another evidence that Jesus is being deliberate, controlled, and thoughtful is that he handles the livestock and the doves differently. So to, those, to the livestock, it says that he, he drives it out with the whip of cords. And so if you're driving livestock out of the temple, what's going to happen is, is as you're driving out the livestock, the owners of the livestock are going to follow their property out right, and go and retrieve it. But it specifically says that to those who sold doves, he says to them, get these out of here. Well, why is that? Because <laughs> Jesus doesn't want to just open the cages of the doves and shoo them away, because unlike with the livestock, you can't go chase after birds once they're flying around, right? So there's a sign here that Jesus is being somewhat restrained. He's even in his his expression of anger showing some restraint and, and, and concern for the property that these people have. You know, to those who have birds, okay, get them out of here and then follow your livestock out of here. So anyway, those two points are debatable. That's what I see in the text here, evidence of restraint. But the one thing that I think we can't, we can't argue with is the fact that Jesus chose to express his anger in a way that sent a powerful, symbolic, and prophetic message. So it's not like Jesus is just randomly exploding in anger. He's doing something that he knows is going to communicate something powerful to those who are watching. And we can see from the text that the disciples interpret it that way. Right? The disciples see evidence in this action that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament because their first thought is to remember something from the Old Testament. Zeal for your house will consume me. Right? So there's something that's prophetic about what Jesus is doing here. And what Jesus is also communicating is that this whole temple system is about to become obsolete. 
because this temple is all about the way to connect with God, right? The way to worship God. But then he makes it clear that he is the true temple. And now that the true temple has arrived, the old temple is no longer necessary. So there is, there is something very deliberate and purposeful about this action, something that's intended to be communicated beyond just, oh, I just got angry and I flew into a rage. So I say all that because sometimes people look at this passage and they use it as justification for exploding in anger. And just so you know, if you're exploding in anger with no control at all, that is not a sign that you're growing more in Christlikeness. <laughs> okay, that's a sign that you have a problem with wrath. And then finally, a third way that we can know we have a problem with wrath is if we choose to seek revenge or use violence. Choose to seek revenge or use violence. Revenge is that desire we feel to make someone hurt. Either for doing something wrong to us or just for doing something we don't like. Um, and violence, of course, is the extreme measure that we sometimes take in order to achieve that, in order to get what we want to, uh, to hurt somebody. And Jesus is very, very clear that the way of revenge and violence is not his way. And you know what? I have to confess that as I become more and more aware of the injustice that exists in the world and all the terrible things that, that happen, the harder this teaching becomes for me. Um, but we all have to wrestle with the fact that Jesus said very clearly in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, I don't think that Jesus was saying here that we should just allow people to perpetrate injustice or abuse without consequence. I, I don't think that's what he's saying. Uh, a healthy society is going to have laws in place that uh, do their best to try and maintain justice and order. There's nothing wrong with that. But what Jesus is saying here is that revenge is not supposed to be our way of life. Right? If somebody slaps us in the face, either, either literally or verbally, um, we are, our first reaction should not be to hit back. Our first reaction should not be to get even or make them hurt. Uh, our first choice should be to try and make peace, as hard as that is. There's, there's a story in Luke that I really, really like that I think demonstrates this. This is uh, Luke 9, starting in verse 51. As the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. Uh, some of the ancient manuscripts of the Bible actually include a little bit more that Jesus says here. They, they, they actually explain what his rebuke was. 
If you have an NIV version of the Bible like me, there's a footnote on the bottom of your page that says some ancient manuscripts include this line, uh, which is, Jesus said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Now, in this moment, the disciples have a legitimate reason to be upset, don't they? Because they know they're with the Messiah, right? They're with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, a man whose reputation is beyond dispute. And these people are not, don't even have the dignity to show him basic hospitality. In that culture, it was expected that if somebody was coming through town and they needed a place to stay and a meal to eat and some water, you, you were supposed to provide that. But the people in this whole town are saying no to Jesus and his disciples having a place to stay. So the disciples have a legitimate reason to be angry, right? Um, And so they say, well, can we take vengeance here? You know, Jesus, we know you got a lot of power, so why don't we call down fire from heaven? Like back in Elijah's day. And Jesus says no. He says that attitude, that attitude that wants to rain down fire on our enemies, that attitude that, that, that wants to make people hurt for doing wrong, that is not an attitude that comes from the Holy Spirit. If our anger turns into this insatiable desire to make people pay, to rain down fire on people for their sins, we might have a problem with wrath. If we'd rather see people destroyed than redeemed, We are not of the spirit of Christ, right? Because the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. All right. Well, let's get into the question of how does wrath entangle us? I don't want to spend much time on this because I I think it's self-evident, right? How does wrath ruin our lives? Well, first of all, it ruins our relationships, does anybody like being around somebody who's always complaining and angry and like could explode at any moment and take it out on you? Anybody? Yeah? Nobody likes that, right? And what happens, one of the curses of being a wrathful person is that you don't have real intimacy with anybody, right? Because people get uncomfortable with you, so they keep their distance. And then maybe people in your life who have to be around you deliberately withhold things that create intimacy. Like, right, if you had an abusive parent, I bet you didn't talk to that parent about your hopes and dreams and the longings of your heart, right? Because you were afraid, if I get honest, if I share what's, what's really on my mind, this person might jump down my throat, right? They might attack me. And so one of the curses of being a wrathful person is you don't get to enjoy real closeness with anybody. Uh, Also, wrath makes us miserable, right? That's not rocket science. If you're really angry, you're not happy. Happiness and anger don't go together. And then finally, when we're wrathful, it destroys our witness for Christ. Destroys our witness for Christ. No one ever comes to faith and says, you know what it was? You know what it was that really led me to Jesus? It was Christians. There was something different about them. They were just so angry. 
that really won me over, really sparked my curiosity. Every time I was among them, I felt hated. <laughs> and it makes sense that nobody would say that, right? Because Jesus said, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. If people are coming to Christ because people are angry, they're probably not coming to the true Christ. According to Jesus, the mark of a real Christian witness is love, not anger. It's not a desire to destroy, but a desire to bless, to save, to redeem, to restore. All right. So how do we find freedom? How do we find freedom from this terrible uh, impulse of wrath? Well, that is a very difficult question. And there's no... There's no magic pill we can take to suddenly uh, eliminate our, our anger. But I think something that can help is we need to recognize where our anger comes from. And as I was reflecting on this this week, it occurred to me that a lot of our anger comes from two primary sources. Maybe all of our anger. Maybe you guys could think of some exceptions, but I was having trouble thinking of any. Uh, sources of anger. One is fear, right? We, we get angry because we're afraid. We're afraid that something is a threat to our safety, to our peace, to our self-esteem, and then we want to attack it, right? So fear is at the root. And the other source is a sense of entitlement. Uh, we get angry because we feel like something that we deserve has been denied to us. Now, the thing is, because there is such thing as righteous anger, right? Sometimes our sense of entitlement is right. Yeah? I mean, we should feel like we are entitled to be respected and treated with dignity. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but sometimes our sense of entitlement can go way beyond what it should be. And if we have an extremely strong source of entitlement, or um, sense of entitlement, then we are especially prone to anger. But any sense of entitlement that we have eventually is likely to lead to anger, either the good kind or, or the bad kind. Now, those of us who have a real serious problem with anger, you know, a problem where it deserves to be called wrath, a problem with wrath, we also tend to have problems with fear and entitlement. We have a tendency to perceive almost anything as a threat, to always be on guard against everybody and everything, uh, and we have a, a tendency to feel entitled to an easy life where everything goes smoothly. Uh, you know, people should do what we want. <laughs> Appliances and cars shouldn't break down. Food and money and romance should be easy to acquire and maintain. And then when life takes more effort or patience than we think that it should, we start to get upset and we get angry and we get wrathful. And what I want us to see this morning is that Jesus can help when it comes to both of those sources of anger, our fear and our sense of entitlement. And the, the place in scripture that I want us to turn to in order to see this is a passage that I think is one of the most incredible ones in the entire Bible. Uh, it's Luke 23, starting in verse 32. Let's take this in. 
Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they were crucified with him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. It's impossible to really fathom the significance of what's going on here. This man that's being crucified is God in the flesh. God in human form. That means this is the one who created the world. And this is the one who, moment by moment, upholds the world and keeps it from falling into non-existence. You know, one of the great questions of philosophy is, why is there something rather than nothing? The Bible's answer to that is because there is a God who upholds everything that exists, moment by moment, and sustains it. And in this moment, the very creation that God upholds and sustains is t- attacking the one who sustains it in human flesh, driving Uh, nails through his hands and his feet. Jesus, this God in the flesh, he's not only good, he's, he's not only righteous, he's the supreme authority. Good, righteous, uh, worthy of not just respect, but worship and devotion. And in this moment, he's being given anything but worship and devotion, right? The, the complete opposite of that, he's being executed like a criminal, He's been tortured, he's been scourged with whips, and he's being sneered at, mocked. This is the greatest injustice that's ever been committed in the history of the world because never in history was anyone less deserving of the way they were being treated than Jesus is here. If anybody ever had a right to say, I deserve better than this and unleash hell, it was Jesus. And not only that, but Jesus also had the power to get what he deserved in this moment. In one of the Gospels, Jesus reminds the disciples as he's being taken away, as he's being arrested, I could call a legion of angels to come and defend us right now. He had that capability. He had that power. He could have said to the people sneering at him, okay, I will save myself. And then he could have called down that fire from heaven and incinerated everybody. But instead of taking what he was entitled to, he stayed on the cross. He stayed because he was paying for the sins of the world. He stayed because there was something more important to him than getting what he was entitled to. What was more important to him was us. He wanted to free us from the penalty of our sin, and he knew that only he could pay that price for us. And so instead of responding with anger, instead of demanding his rights, instead of saying, this is what I'm entitled to, instead of attacking, Jesus does does something amazing, right? The God of the universe looks upon the sneering masses, the people who are torturing him, and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
You know, when we realize that this is what God is like, it has power to release us from wrath. Because it has power to release us from that fear and that sense of entitlement. First, fear. Why does it have power to free us from that? Because when we realize that God loves us that much, the world stops being as scary of a place. We stop feeling so threatened by everything all the time because we know there is a God who is stronger than any threat that we encounter, a God who holds our future secure in his hands, and we know that there is a God who loves us more than we can even understand. How can we live in fear when we know that the author and sustainer of all existence loves us that much? 1 John 4.18 says, perfect love drives out fear. And this is perfect love. And when we recognize that perfect love, it has the power to drive out fear. And when fear gets driven out, a lot of our anger goes with it. And then second, this picture of God has power to free us from from, uh, anger because it humbles our whole sense of self-entitlement. You know, how can I feel entitled to have an easy life where everything goes my way and complain if it doesn't, if this happened to the sinless God of the universe. If the sinless God of the universe didn't lash out in vengeful anger when he was wrong so deeply, it doesn't make sense for me to feel so entitled. And if it doesn't make sense for me to feel so entitled, it doesn't make sense for me to be wrathful. You know, you can, you can find self-help books out there to help you deal with an anger problem. Uh, they'll probably teach you relaxation techniques. They'll, they'll probably teach you some skills for meditation and, you know, how to not react in the heat of the moment. They'll give you skills for gaining control over your amygdala and submitting it to the authority of your cortex and all that stuff. And that's great. And if you have a problem with anger, I encourage you to read those kinds of books and, you know, see what you can learn from them. But more important and foundational than any of that stuff is what we believe about God. It's whether we really believe that God is like this, that God is like Jesus on the cross here, that God is really willing to say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. You know, if you struggle with wrath, read this passage every morning. (laughs) Meditate on this passage. And remember, this is what God is like. And then invite this God to live in you and work through you. Because if you do, you will find your fear giving way to courage and your sense of entitlement giving way to humility and your wrath giving way to love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is unfathomable uh, to, to really grasp uh, how incredible that moment is on the cross. And Lord, I pray that we would take in that moment and that it would melt our hearts of stone, uh, that you would replace our, our hearts of stone with hearts of compassion. I pray for any of us who struggle with anger, Lord, whatever the source may be, we pray that uh, you would let us in, um, or that we would let you in 
to our hearts, Lord, to transform us and uh, to become more like you. Father, help us to know the difference between good anger and bad anger. And when we get angry, Lord, may we always be uh, deliberate, controlled, purposeful, and loving in what we do with that anger. In Jesus' name, amen.